Hi everyone, welcome to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. I'm Langdon DeMint. And I'm Julian Taylor. And welcome to our podcast. So, welcome to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. Welcome to the podcast. Hey Langdon, how are you doing? Good, how are you Jules? Um, all good, thank you very much. Good. And, and you have a friend with you today, I see. I brought a friend with me. Uh, Ed, do you want to say hello? Hey guys, my name's Ed Clancy, a three-time Olympic gold medalist. I'm assuming that's why you've brought me on the show, because about safety, I know nothing whatsoever. So, so uh, it's been a great start, but yeah, thanks for having me on your show. So I think, I think, Ed, first thing is you undersold yourself slightly there. So three gold medals, yeah, one bronze medal. Did that feel like a bit of a disappointment? Um... No, it came in a different event. It was a lot of different context and uh, in a word, no. Okay. No, I was happy. Says the man who, who's the norm, normally, normally the guy at the back. Go a there. quick question. When you've yeah. won gold medals, does second yeah. place truly feel like first loser? And there's a good question. You know, I, I like this sort of stuff, but this has been studied by uh, lottery winners, for example. You know, you'll, you can win the lottery and then overnight you've got everything you've ever wanted. And then after a period of sort of six to 18 months, you know, everyone's sort of happiness levels comes pretty much back down to where it started. And, you know, achievements are like possessions in that, you know, Langdon, you've probably aspired to having a promotion, a new car, new house or whatever it is. And then, you know, after a certain period of time, if you're not very, very careful, you can almost become accustomed to anything. And I guess winning's one of those things as well. And, uh, you know, as, as addictive as it gets, yeah, sometimes you can feel like second place didn't cut it anymore. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's why I was. I mean, you you touched the top, so that's why I was asking that. You know, I mean, it's I can relate it to golf, and I think about it from that perspective. I've won tournaments, and then I've yeah. lost tournaments, but never a big time. I mean, you know, so that's why I was. That's why I was asking. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, everything becomes you know relative, and obviously you're pretty good at what you did. And if I picked up a golf bat. And, you know, won a local <laughs> club tournament, I'd be over the moon. I'd be absolutely over the moon. But, of course, you know, once you've done that or you graduate up to sort of national level and so on, then, uh, yeah, it's, you know, trying to be grateful for the things you've got in your life and where you're at at any given point in time, it's easier said yeah. than done. You know, as you know, you just, you'll become accustomed to it. So it was an interesting question then. What, what Was one thing more important than the other? So you've won gold at the Olympics. Yeah. You've also won gold at the world champs as a cyclist. What, what was sort of the, the, the sort of the, the sort of highlight for you? Yeah, for me, the the Olympics was the big one, yeah. and it probably helped that I don't know. You, you kind of, particularly in this country, the Olympics is bigger. Yeah. You know, it's got a higher profile than the Commonwealth Games or the World Championships or the European Championships, and in cycling terms the the very pinnacle of the sport is arguably the tour de france yeah um, but if you're not an out and out road rider it's the olympic games yeah. uh, so for track cycling yeah the, the olympics was the biggest thing which suited me fine because you know the great britain cycling team they never made this a secret you know they were after one thing and one thing only yeah it was a pretty ruthless program that was literally funded on one event every yeah. four years yeah. the olympic games and uh, you know, as frustrating as that was at times, you know, we never really rolled out the whole marginal gains thing and, you know, we'd keep a lot of the budget back 
um, you know, for one event every four years. Uh, it was a bit of a blessing and a curse, and it worked really, really well for that, um, the key moments once every four years. But yeah, there was, you know, big periods of, um, I don't know. We won world championships, we won Europeans, as you know, in the middle, in the interim years, if you like. But I, I guess you, you get into a habit of wanting to win everything. You yeah, know? yeah. Just out of interest, we don't normally mention the C word on here. Um, and, and by that, I'm, I'm talking COVID. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. He's, 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 <laughs> got to be careful with that, Joel. Yeah, I've got to be very like careful that. with that with somebody who doesn't know us. Yeah. Um, but how sort of big was the disappointment, do you think, for athletes when the Olympics got put back for you? And how disruptive yeah. is it? Yeah, yeah, massively so. In uh, every athlete, it'll be the same in business, and I'm sure in your world too. It's like people like to have uh, targets and goals, and I think it's a pretty human trait to be upset when the goalposts move. And uh, funny, it's one of the things Professor Steve Peters, our in-house psychiatrist, used to tell me over and over again. You know, if I'd ever go to him moaning about whatever it was, you know, he'd just sit me down. So that's three uh, indisputable facts of life. You know, the, the goalposts move, there's no guarantees, life is unfair. And he was just like, just get your head around that as soon as you possibly can. And I remember the, the day the Olympics was postponed a year yeah. and I'd literally just come off a phone call with the Daily Mail and uh, they were sort of like quizzing me, like, you know, is the Olympics going to get cancelled? There's more and more rumours that are kicking off about it now. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, and I genuinely believed, and everything I heard from British Cycling and UK Sport is that the Olympics was going to happen yeah. in three or four months' time. Yeah, about two minutes after I hung up to the Daily Mail, the official letter came through from British Cycling. It's like, yeah, it's been canned. And at that point in time, we didn't know if it was going to get canned completely or it was going to come back. And uh, I guess for me, I was very much at the end of my career. So there was a bit of a decision to be made then, you know, whether I was going to crack on or yeah. sort of quit while we were ahead. And you were ahead. I mean, looking at it, so we've, we've got gold medals at the Olympics. We've got six gold medals at the, at the World, World Track Championships. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that I love as, as well, the thing that I, I sort of, I watched it happen was breaking the world record for the team pursuit. Mm. Um, do you want to talk to us about that? You, was it eight times you and your different cyclists broke that team pursuit record? Yeah, we were definitely onto a, a good thing for a, a decent chunk of time, really. And I think that's to, to me, is what made, um, looking back now on my career, it wasn't so much um, any single win or experience. You know, winning the home Olympics or whatever, for example, or breaking the world record there in front of your home crowd. It was great, obviously, but I think the most impressive thing looking back is that how we, you know, how we dealt with the test of time. You know, it, everyone knows that saying it's hard to get to the top yeah. and it's even harder to stay there, yeah. but you don't really know what that means or looks like until you've given it a good go. And yeah, I could speak for half an hour in terms of the the difficulties in dealing with success, you know, just as an individual. And then in terms of like uh, organizational success as well, yeah. trying to keep all that intellectual property there, all the sports scientists, coaches, uh, management, that all of a sudden had a big green tick of credibility. 
um, and worth to their CV, trying to keep all that in the building, you know, on a government funded programme was very, very difficult. And really I was involved in four successful Olympic cycles. And um, I think that was the most impressive thing looking back. And you mentioned the eight world records that we took on the way. Yeah, Yeah, I, I didn't even know that was a stat, you know. I had no idea that just happened on the way somehow. So eight, eight, world, eight times broke the world record. And if I'm right, you took nearly six seconds out of, from, from the start of that to the end of that, probably nearly between five and six seconds out of it. Yeah, and even now I no longer hold the world record. And I'm, it's, uh, it's two or th- more than that, four or five seconds quicker than I've yeah, ever gone. Yeah. And... Yeah, and, and the second in track cycling is massive, isn't it? Team pursuit in particular, you know, the event I did, you know, for the listeners at home if that don't know cycling so well, there's basically four guys, you know, big pointy spaceman helmets on, uh, all working together, um, essentially a, a race from A to B as fast as you can, four kilometres. And the event has evolved so fast over the last um, decade and a half now, uh, not just because of um, riders, better riders getting into track cycling. Uh, but that has been most definitely the case. There's been a massive arms race alongside it as well. You know, the aerodynamics, uh, not just the bikes. Um, the bikes we could talk about again for half an hour just on like you know, how much development we've done in the wind tunnels over the years with them, but the skin suits, the helmets, the over socks, the ball bearings, what grease we're running the ball bearings in, what we're filling the tires with. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so many things uh, we'll look at and that's just the, the technology side of things. You know, we could talk about the, the strategy side of things and what lines you ride around the track. Yeah. Um, when do you do your changes off the front, you know, to share the sort of burden with the rest of your team? Uh, you know, the whole event is like a completely different sport now. And, you know, funnily enough, aerodynamics has changed what the ideal rider physiology makeup looks like, yeah. that things have changed that much. but. I won't bore you with the detail anymore. And, and, and I think we'll we'll get into that in a minute because I think I think that was there is a link to safety here. Um, yeah. And and it's not the safety from pretty cycling, but it's more what I think what safety people could learn from a professional sporting team. Yeah. Um, and and sort of particularly around that, it doesn't have to be big gains, does it? It's it can be lots of little things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that make the difference. Yeah. Um, and I was gonna. You kind of bring me neatly onto the next thing, which is we've we've got a new king in the UK, Langdon. I think you you're aware of that, um, yeah. and you've been you've actually been honoured twice, <laughs> haven't you? Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you've been honoured twice. So 2009, which I, I presume was post um, post Beijing, pro, yeah, post Beijing, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was an MBE. Yep. And then you got the OBE in 2017. Yep. Okay, I'm going to be slightly facetious here, Dad, if you don't mind, because my dad was a really blunt, straight-talking northerner as well. Yeah. And he used to say about the OBE, his, his expression was, it was all down to other buggers' efforts. Um, <laughs> and, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of, yeah. I'm going to praise that a bit and say, I'm not saying you didn't have to ride around the track and, and you're phenomenal, a phenomenal athlete. Mm. And actually, I look at the teams that you work with in as well. Yeah. And, Sir Chris Hoy and people like there were some phenomenal people in those teams. Yeah. Um, but actually, you couldn't you couldn't have done it without all of the other supporting people, could you? And that's what interests no. me is that 
Yeah. Who, who else? What makes up a cycling team? You know what? He's, he's big, like um, big. Yeah. I, I haven't got my medals with me today, but you know, if you go around and do an event and that, I, no, I haven't seen an Olympian that's overly precious about their medals. Yeah. And I, I think the reason behind that is that unless there's something wrong with them, there, there is a, an understanding that they haven't done it on their own. Yeah. And so let's talk about the team. Like, how big is it? So you've got um, the athlete, or at least, you know, in the team pursuit that my three gold medals came from, you've got the team of yeah. four riders. So from those four riders, you've got at least a, a sports scientist, a physiologist, a coach, a physiotherapist, a psychiatrist, a performance director, an engineer, a, a biomechanist. You've got so many, that's just eight people. Yeah. And then you've got attached to those eight people, for example, there'll be more than that. You'll have another uh, set of family you know they'll have their attached uh, wives and kids yeah. and friends uh, that all make sacrifices so that those guys so they can support those guys and they can support the athlete uh, and then bigger than that you start to look at the wider ones there's more to it than your sort of connected team within british cycling there's the whole british olympic association that supports the olympic program there's uk sport uh, that funds us and the people that go out looking for funding and sponsors and partners and so on um, and then, of course, there's a the lottery funding and the government and everyone that allows that happen. So really, when you think about how big the team is, uh, when you zoom out a little bit, is um, quite probably everyone in the UK has contributed to it one way or another, um, either directly or indirectly. And there's this idea that everyone sort of knows someone that knows someone, you know, everyone's connected in one way or another. And, um, you know, it's been amazing over the years how many people have... Um, so little things, you know, it's the random bloke in the supermarket that'll, you know, give you a pat on the back and say, oh, you know, well done last month. Or so, you know, sometimes even the opposite, I hard luck last month. And uh, he just says, oh, it was great watching you, know, walking around a shopping centre last month. And you know, it's been a year since I retired, but they were like, oh, thanks for all the memories you, you and the boys gave me. And it's good, it picks you up and it makes you think, damn, it was worth it. And I th so many people have played a small part in that. I'm not sure if Langdon did or not, though. So I'm not, not sure I've had much support from the States over there. <laughs> but it's, it's a big team, yeah. yeah. It would have been just out of negligence. Yeah. <laughs> he, he will now. Now he knows who you are, he will. Yeah. Um, but, but I was going to say, people say never meet your, your heroes. And I've met the odd hero before and sat there and wondered what on earth to say to them. And the one thing I've got to say about you, Ed, is you're the easiest bloke I've ever found to talk to. And, and I like the humility as well. I'm, I love that, that part of it because I love the fact that it is a team game. And, um, yeah. and, and it kind of relates very much to what we talk about, which is because what you see in loads of businesses when we're talking safety, and Langdon, you can back me up on this, is you see the one person who's trying to do it on their own. Yeah. And I think the lesson to learn is, is actually in, in any walk of life, it's how you get people across an organization supporting what it is you're trying to do. Yeah, big time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, we're talking a lot of sport here, aren't we? And, um, you know, even we've sort of, like, touched on marginal gains and things like that. For example, earlier, we're talking about the little things we did to the bike. And um, I guess what we're talking about now is, uh, in part, like, having humility and having an understanding of the wider, wider organization. But I think high performance is high performance. And there's... Um, there's loads of crossover between sports and business and safety and whatever it is. And um, 
you know, this is something I do have an unusual interest in, you know, what makes teams and individuals successful. And it doesn't really matter how you apply it or what organisation you apply it to. Um, so, for example, there, we, you touched on sort of humility. Yeah. And um, so let's think of potentially like the, the greatest sporting team of all time, you know, the New Zealand All Blacks, yeah. I reckon. Yeah. It's got to be one of them that's, you know, been around for decades and decades at the very, very top. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this idea that every, everyone, the janitor, the most senior player on the pitch, the head coach, they all take it in turns to sweep the locker room, as they call it, or, you know, they'll clean the changing room. And they do that because they, you know, they believe in humility and that everyone's part of the team, yeah. is my point. You know, there's, there's, everyone has a value and everyone has a worth. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be people on different pay grades and different salaries and different roles and responsibilities within an organisation. But, you know, I do think that's um, a nice touch, you know. I think successful organisations know what they stand for and they have good values that support them. And I, th I think that's a great point because, I mean, we talk about leadership a lot, don't we, Landon? And, mm. and actually, the leader sweeping the locker room floor... Yeah actually shows they're part of the team, don't they? Yeah, they also, big time. Yeah. And they also demonstrate what's important. Yeah. Because actually sweeping the locker room floor is important. Um, 100%, yeah. I mean, like, uh, it's dead easy when you're flying around the world winning Olympic gold medals or not, that, you know, somewhere in an office back in Manchester, there's uh, a young grad yeah. that's booking the flights. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If we turned up to the airport and there was no flight to get on, we, we won't even get started, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. everyone plays a part in it, and um, it's funny, like, um, I'm starting to sort of, like, open my eyes to, like, the afterlife of sport and what it's about, and, like, everyone plays a part, and, you know, I've done a little bit of coaching in British Psych, and I'm still working with a research and innovation team, and it's no longer my job to, like, you know, front up to the questions with the media. Yeah. It's no longer my job to, like, lay it out on the big day, and, but, you know, everyone in there is working hard and you, you see that now. And I wish I had a little bit more of that, you know, when I was a rider, because um, everyone's sacrificing, everyone's hustling and grinding and doing the bit for the, the greater good. You are literally just a front man when you're an athlete. And uh, that's the reason you invited me here today, not the, the girl that books the flights. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so question, we've kind of gone a bit off script here, haven't we, Langdon? We did have a few questions, but I suppose the, the starting point was, was, was how's it... So you're, you're a kid from Northern England. Yeah. yeah? Just, just for our American listeners, just describe you kind of where you grew up and, and the kind of place it was. Yeah, yeah, so Langdon and all the American folk out there, I was from Barnsley, in, uh, it's in the north of England. And um, I guess... Historically, it was like a, a pit mining town. There's a lot of northern pit mining towns up here and, um, you know, eventually they all got closed down. And uh, I guess there was a relatively large amount of unemployment, very working class, you know, working class part of the world. And that's where I was born in Barnsley. Um, grew up there for three, four years of my life. Um, after parents got divorced, we moved just down the road to a place called Denby Dale. Probably still in the Barnes region, to be fair. Um, lived with my grandparents for a, a while. And then, um, yeah, just uh, brought by my mum, my big brother. And I guess that's when my love of cycling started, to be honest, just playing mountain bikes and BMXs and things like that. And So how do you move from that into, into sort, of, sort of road cycling or, or, or even competitive cycling? Yeah, th there was this... Um, 
it took a while and I very much enjoyed arsing around on bikes and I very much still do when I'm approaching four years old. But I think there was some point uh, there was this marriage of like a love of riding bikes and you know getting out and exploring and and then also I that was attached to a bit of ambition yeah. later on uh, in, in my teens to be honest. So I came into the sport of cycling pretty late. Uh, my stepdad sort of came along and there was no there was no light bulb moment. I was like, great, is a male role model for me to try and emulate um, and try and be somewhat successful. And but I think subconsciously that's pretty much what happened. You know, I was um, I, I I thought to myself, right, well, I, I'm not like yourself, Jules. Uh, you've told me a bit about your story, you know, off air and. Like yourself, I was never really into school. I didn't enjoy um, studying, but I did enjoy my bikes. And I was like, well, if I can somehow make a living out of this, let's go, yeah. you know? And as soon as I realized that I had a little bit of talent uh, athletically and, you know, my one time to shine every year was on school sports day, <laughs> the 100 meter run or the cross country. And I knew I had a little bit of something physically you know and once i brought a bit of hard work and determination to that uh, kevin clancy my stepdad was around to sort of take me to a few bike races show me the the a better way if you like and yeah shortly after that really we were picked up by british cycling there was looking back there's a few stars that aligned at the same time you know there was this um, initiative from british cycling called the talent team yep. that was around to sort of identify untapped talent uh, fortunately, I managed to tick a few boxes in the sort of criteria for that. One thing led to another, and um, I think by the time we were seven, 16, 17 years old, uh, I don't know, six, uh, six or seven hundred pounds worth of lottery funded in my back pocket, and that would that have meant, felt like a fortune, wouldn't it? Oh, loaded! Yeah. Uh, richest kid I knew, yeah. and uh, <laughs> but it, on a serious note, it was enough to like get you to you know, pay for your membership. Yeah. Uh, you know what it's like, you ride bikes every time you smash through a pothole. Yeah, yeah. There we go, there's another 50 quid tire gone. And it was enough just to get to a few national races, um, be able to present yourself in front of the right people on the right days. And yeah, that led to the junior programme and then that led to the under 23 programme. And again, you know, it's um, back to my point I made earlier, like I didn't do any of this on my own. I do feel fortunate that I popped up at a time where British Cycling had a good recruitment process. Yep. It had a well-funded under-23 programme uh, where we really sort of like learnt the trade. And um, yeah, of course I worked hard and I did everything I could. And um, got, I'm not tempted to say I've gotten that conveyor belt, but I did, I worked hard to stay on it. And, yeah. And, and, and I mean, again, I think you, you were saying, weren't you, Landon, you were doing a bit of research. And when was the, when was the last time that Britain had won a gold medal? I don't remember what I'd, it was like early 1900s, wasn't it? 1908, 1908, I think it was. Yeah, it was 1908 in the Team Pursuit. Yeah. Yeah, 1908 in the Team Pursuit would have been the last one, I yeah. think, something like that, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then, but there was a couple of medals, weren't there, yeah. from Chris Boardman, yeah. was it 1992? Chris Boardman and, then, and yeah. And there was Atlanta and um, Athens. Yeah. As, as Queely got the, yeah. I remember Jason Queely getting that gold medal in the kilo in yeah. Sydney 2000 actually, and then Chris Hoy in 2004, and those guys, but those two names in particular, Hoy, Queely, yeah. 
yeah. God status, you know, Th those guys really paved the way, just getting those couple of gold medals early on. If it wasn't for those guys, you know, when I was going through the junior program and, um, you know, pulling wheelies on my mountain bike, just getting that first um, hit of money from UK Sport, which enabled them to have a talent identification process, you know, which brought along, not just myself, but Mark Cavendish, Geraint Thomas, uh, Lizzie Dignan, yeah. Joe Rousel, Laura Kenny, Jason Kenny, so many. We just hit this golden era, didn't we? Yeah. We just spectacular. Yeah. And in so many different events as well, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. that we were strong in one event. We just, across the board, yeah. we were competing. That, that's right, yeah. And, I mean, everyone have their own theory, but I, I think we did have um, an unusually fortunate talent pool of riders. When you think back to sort of like Beijing, there was uh, Vicky Pendleton, uh, Jason Quee was still around, there was Chris Hoy, Bradley Wiggins, Geraint Thomas, Mark Cavendish coming through. There, there was all that sort of talent pool that was coming through. And then we sort of coupled that to the fact that we were well-funded um, in Beijing, you know, ahead of our home Olympics in London. And then we had obviously this performance director called Dave, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's no doubt that he did a lot for us and you know, he, he didn't invent this marginal gains philosophy, but he did. What came first? Was it was it rugby with marginal gains and then cycling? Because Clive Woodward talked about it as well, didn't he? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the beautiful thing about marginal gains and um was it a Chinese thing originally? There was this um Well I, I call it he trying how do you eat an elephant? And it's a little bit at a time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it, isn't it, you know? And um, the beautiful thing about marginal gains is you can apply the philosophy to pretty much anything you're doing yeah. in life. Yeah. I think it's, you know, for those people uh, that are listening in that hasn't really heard of marginal gains philosophy before, the whole idea is, like you said, it's like trying to eat an elephant. Or for Dave Brailsford, he wanted to win everything. Yeah. You know, and he was quite happy to tell everyone that. Yeah. So he'd break it down into like, okay, we've got 10 events we can go out here. And, you know, in these 10 events, we've got 40 riders. So let's take each of these 40 riders in a wind tunnel. And then all of a sudden you've got 200 components. Then it's like, right, well, we can break this down into like a physical component, an aerodynamic component. And as we've already spoke about, you can break down the aerodynamic component into, there'll be 200 different parts on the bike. Yeah. And you really break it down. And you maximize every ball bearing, yeah. um, every drop of tra chain lube, yeah. you know, every, um, <laughs> every sort of like square millimeter of uh, tire on your bike you know what glues the tire onto the rim what bonds the carbon fiber together yeah. there's so many things you can look at if you've got the right personnel in the building that have a willingness to learn yeah. and to be frank you know i think marginal gains is one of those philosophies that works better if you've got an abundance of um, you know resources financially as yeah. well to be yeah. honest so, so again with safety. I mean, we've talked about this, haven't we, Langdon? You, sorry, you're going to jump in. No, no, and I think it's just something to that. You know, what are your thoughts on when? When did you join again, Ed? When did you first? Ooh, I think my first. Um, the well, first the bit, British like, cycling team, I should say. Yeah, yeah. The first sort of experience in British cycling team would have been like 2001, 2002, sort of thing. Okay. So so it was very early in the infancy, or maybe even pre, yeah. correct me where I'm wrong, of marginal gains. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think there was um, the odd medal dropping in at the Olympics and World Championships, but it was very True. much a rarity. And in terms of, uh, you know, this whole um, 
I don't know. I kind of feel like British, the British cycling team as we know it now was kind of born in Beijing, if that makes sense. And of course there was like success yeah. before, but yeah, <laughs> things really went viral in terms of like winning gold medals, you know, in Beijing onwards, I think, yeah. Well, and, I, and the reason I was asking is it's because I think a lot of times, you know, we see it. There's, you have a large swath of organization types from some people that, you know, manufacturing. I got, I got to think that you have some, you know, you know, local manufacturing where you live now, where you even grew up. People have been doing the job for 30, 40, 50 years. You know, yeah. I, there's only so much you can tell them because they're the expert of their specific job task craft wherever they are mm. and, and that's one of the things i think we face is oftentimes how can we always transition i think this is across the board no matter really where you are how can we create better value when it comes to health and safety and having those conversations to making everybody care and everybody want to get better you know sometimes mm. it was legislation I mean, you yeah. know, here in America, you had OSHA, there you have HSE and so, you know, whatnot that are able to kind of get it started. But then you still have a lot of organizations, you have a lot of people that they don't care. And, and I think what you hit on was something that it's it, those little, little wins almost. Yeah. How did you see it starting for you and for the British cycling team? Because I think that's something yeah. that we have to constantly do. Even now, it's how can we work with various people? How can various organizations understand that sometimes it's these little pieces that you want to have a massive program. That's great. We want you yeah. to also. But yeah. you don't even have people actually saying that <laughs> that's a hazard. You know what I mean? I do. I think um, the way I see it is that you can have all the... Um, resources and finances or whatever in the world, you know, to try and make a difference, make these little changes happen that are all going to make one big one. But if you're stuck in an environment where people don't have a willingness to learn, that is probably the biggest barrier to progress that I've come across, you know, and, and it's almost becomes uh, more and more of a problem um, in my experience, the more success that um, not just teams, but people have behind them, if that makes sense. So, for example, in our world, if we had a, a it's a fictitious example, if we had a sports scientist um, that was the best and brightest in the GCSEs and then their A-levels, and then they go to Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard, you know, for example, and they've always been the top, and then they'll go and do an Olympic cycle in um, canoeing or rowing, and they'll come away with credibility and respect and um, experience and all that stuff's good and I'm not trying to demonize any of that uh, but as soon as people lose the willingness to learn because they believe it almost like crystallizes that belief that everything they think they already know is correct and it's very easy trap to fall into same with athletes you know it's so often people will win you know the first uh, world championship or Olympic Games or whatever it is, and then it's like, right, I know how to do it. I've been there myself. And you kind of think, right, I've got this. I know how to do this. Um, I'm an independent man. <laughs> you can sort of like go it alone, and you kind of lose that willingness to explore and learn and trial new things. And I think as soon as that happens, whether you're in elite sport or you're trying to um, adapt an organization's approach to health and safety, uh, you know, trying to introduce new ideas, I think what I'm getting at here is you've just got to lock, net, 
not let ego get in the way of education and knowledge and improvement? No, I think that's spot on. And it really, Joel's is smiling. I don't know if he knows where I'm about to go with this. There is a, it seems like if you, if you really think about it, we had that, you know, legislation I hit on earlier. That's kind of that where, where work started, where culture started, you know, back before then it was the wild, wild west of anything that you wanted to do when it comes to the work. It, you know, there was no regulations. Then you started seeing a little more kind of risk management, which means, hey, let's let's be a little more preventative. But now it seems like if we can get better learning engaged within people, yeah. that's when you start seeing better changing. And it, and it seems like, and that's something you just hit on, that when people want to learn, I can use that for myself when I was taking golf lessons. I mean, dang, you think about, think about Tiger Woods taking it for golf for a second. There's not many people that when they were at the top of their game were willing to totally change everything golf-wise because their swing and everything, because they continually wanted to grow. They wanted to mm. learn how to be better and how to stay at the top. Yeah, yeah. And that's something I think we struggle with a lot of times. It's how can we help others have that same motivation of wanting to learn yeah. to understand where can we be, where can we be better? Because yeah. It's easy to say, I've done this a long time. I know where I can do what I need to do. And I know how I can cut corners because I'm, I'm an expert <laughs> of the job, so to speak. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I'm, oh, yeah, I'm sure yeah, in your training, there was times where, mm. you know, I, I want to be the best, but I'm tired. I know that if I don't do yeah. whatever, ABC, yep. it's still good enough for today. You know, and, and that's, a, yeah. that's yeah. hard. That's a, that's a mind thing, especially it seems like when you want to really improve yeah yeah one person to improve the whole i think um without trying to be too presumptuous about my knowledge of the health and safety world yeah. so i tell me if i'm calling this wrong but i think so you know i've worked with a performance consultancy company these days and so often there's um, in certain parts of a business there's an understanding that yes we're gonna have to take time away to learn and adapt to a new style of working yeah. And we're going to have to go one step back so that we can implement this stuff. And then, you know, maybe not tomorrow or next month or next year, we can go two steps forward and we're going to have less time off of work because we've, we've implemented this new stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it, you see that in an athlete that, um, again, it's a very easy trap to fall into. Like, you want every day to be a PB. You never want to take your foot off the gas. You know, you always want to be on that trajectory. But, you know, when you think about how training ever worked in the first place you know so um me you and jules langdon we can all go in the gym tomorrow and you know we'll go into the gym at this strength and then we'll work really really hard and then tomorrow we'll actually come out of the gym weaker and we're sore and we're like you know aching and we're all 50 year old men now and we're tired but then you know some <laughs> and then you know, there's only one person feeling old here carry on <laughs> And then there's like, there's like, and then you supercompensate. You know, an athlete rests and they recover, and you don't just end up where you began. You're slightly stronger than you were on day one. By the time you get to day four or five, and that's the whole idea of training. You've got to go one step back to go two steps forward, and it's the constant repeat of that cycle. You know, you go out and do a training camp in Mallorca, dig a massive hole, come back, rest, supercompensate, and you know, you don't necessarily see those benefits. Yeah, like I said, overnight, next week, even next year, you know, we worked in Olympic cycles. It was sometimes we go for four years without breaking a world record or seeing any improvement. 
uh, because we're going through that growth process and um, it's, it's a difficult sell in sport and I can imagine it's a difficult sell for you guys. You know, when you're trying to get people to stop what they're doing, take time off, uh, look at different methods and ways of uh, doing things uh, to ultimately be better in, in the future. Hey everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. Please follow and subscribe to wherever you stream your favorite podcast or visit us at evotix.com. And if you want to see how follically challenged we really are, come and check us out on YouTube. If you've got value from the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and in the review section of this podcast, if you could leave us a review or a rating, that would be great. And as always, everyone, while you're going about your days, and about your normal lives, stay safe out there and watch each other's back. <laughs>